Neuroplasticity knows no bounds. It's a lifelong journey of growth, learning, and personal transformation. And that's from Dr. Andrew Huberman, whose quote we ended our last episode on a deeper dive into neuroplasticity, making me wonder, what about neurogenesis? What's the difference between neuroplasticity that we covered on episode 302 that knows no bounds, that's defined as the ability of the brain to form new connections and pathways and change how its circuits are wired, as shown so well in that Senna's YouTube video that gives us a representation of these pathways visually and what they'll look like in our brain when we create new pathways. This we know we can do throughout our lifetime, while neurogenesis is the even more amazing ability for the brain to grow new neurons. And on today's episode number 303, we'll take a closer look at what exactly is neurogenesis and why is it controversial among neuroscientists. Welcome back to season 10 of the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we connect the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning that's finally being taught in our schools today and emotional intelligence training used in our modern workplaces for improved well-being, achievement, productivity, and results. Using what I saw as the missing link, the application of practical neuroscience. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning and launched this podcast five years ago with the goal of bringing all the leading experts together in one place to uncover the most current research that would bring back how the brain learns best by taking us all to new and often unimaginable heights. So for today's episode number 303, and in keeping with our season theme of going back to the basics to take our learning to new heights, I'm going back to episode 141 on neurogenesis, what helps or hurts our brain cells, because it became clear to me while researching for our last episode that neuroplasticity and neurogenesis are closely connected, but the former is widely accepted, while the latter holds some controversy. So in our first episode on neurogenesis, we looked at tips for regrowing our brain cells, which is neurogenesis, with a reminder of what prevents neurogenesis and hurts our brain and what we can do to help increase neurogenesis in our brain. Now, last episode, while researching Dr. Huberman's work on neuroplasticity, he mentioned there was bad news with neurogenesis and that many people think they can exercise and add new neurons in the brain, but that after age 14, the human nervous system adds few new neurons. And he said that in rodents, neurogenesis could occur, but in humans, it was less obvious. And that while we can't add new neurons, we can change our nervous system. And he dives deeper into the definition of neuroplasticity and why this holds no bounds. Now I'm starting to see the controversy in this topic. And I went back to that first episode on neurogenesis. Now to open up episode 141 that we wrote back in June of 2021, I quoted Dr. David Perlmutter. He's a board-certified neurologist and six times New York best-selling author, and he said 
The best way to increase neurogenesis or regrow your brain cells is when your body produces more BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And we covered this topic deeply on episode 274, what's new with BDNF, building a faster, stronger, more resilient brain. And I even remember Dr. John Rady, the author of the book Spark, The Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain, he said that BDNF was like miracle grow for the brain. And you can't forget some of the things that people say over the years. And he cites a paper where he talked about how brain cells do grow back in the hippocampus and that in the study he cited... They saw that while looking at the brains of terminally ill patients who donated their body to science, they were cancer patients who'd been injected with a dye that shows up in proliferating cells so the spread of the disease could be tracked, and they found their hippocampi were packed with dye marker, proof that the neurons were dividing and propagating, a process called neurogenesis. Dr. Rady's book, Spark, talks about how to kickstart neurogenesis and where the research began, causing me to think back to Dr. Perlmutter's website, where he mentioned that BDNF causes neurogenesis or new cells to form in our brain. And he cites the studies that show that exercise training increases the size of the hippocampus and improves memory. Exactly what Dr. Rady saw that made such a huge difference with those students that he worked with at Naperville High School. Dr. Perlmutter's video on his website talks about this study that showed that after one year of aerobic exercise, exercisers had a marked increase in BDNF and they showed substantial improvement in memory function. Then I found another video that I watched for the research in that last episode, and it was from Sandrine Thuritt's TED Talk called It's Possible to Grow New Brain Cells. And she said that we produce 700 new neurons a day in the hippocampus. Her TED Talk lists many ways you can grow new brain cells, and there's a graphic in the show notes that shows the highlighted words like intermittent fasting, flavonoids found in dark chocolate, and caffeine being a few evidence-based strategies. And conversely, she mentions a diet high in saturated fat, sugar, or ethanol will have a negative impact on neurogenesis. She even showed a study where rats who were runners showed an increase in neurogenesis versus the control group who were non-runners. And that's what Dr. Reedy talked about in his book, Spark. So what does this all mean? Where's the controversy with neuroplasticity versus neurogenesis? To review and conclude this episode on diving deeper into neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, I think we've got a clear picture of how neuroplasticity works from our last episode. We make the conscious effort to build new neural pathways in our brain when we learn something new. But the topic of how we can grow new neurons seems to be where the controversy exists. And it seems like this is only possible in the hippocampus. But I still do wonder why a neurologist like Dr. Perlmutter says that neurogenesis is possible through exercise, while another respected neuroscientist's stance is that this is less obvious in humans. And this is where deep learning comes into our study and being open to what we might uncover here. If we aren't continually questioning what we're learning, then we aren't thinking at all. So I started to think here. 
While thinking about why neurogenesis is less obvious in humans as it might be in rodents, like Sandrine Thurrett's TED Talk covered, and even Dr. Rady took the same rodent study and made a comparison to the students at Naperville whose test scores improved after running. And then I remembered my mentor, Mark Waldman, who made me think deeply about this when he wrote about what neuroplasticity is and isn't. And he explained an article called Adult Neurogenesis in Humans that ended up being my aha moment of learning here. He said to imagine the brain as a city map. And instead of there being 214 streets in Manhattan, imagine that it had a million streets. There's no room for buildings, just streets winding and weaving east to west, north to south, up and down, diagonal, all woven together like a giant hairball. Each city is a brain function, like vision or movement, memory, imagination, and our feelings. And the entire state of New York would have cities upon cities woven together on top and alongside each other. And those billions of roads have trillions of cul-de-sacs, which are the synapses. Can you visualize that? In the show notes, I've put an actual slice of a thousandth of a millimeter of a mouse's brain that shows what this might look like. Everything is jam-packed. But you, the traveler, can decide which road or neural pathway to take in order to reach a specific destination to help you to perform some action or achieve a particular goal. The fastest your brain can process information is about 60 bits per second, and Waldman guesses that any cognitive function would be traveling around 2,000 miles an hour down those roadways in your brain. Now we can accurately visualize what plasticity looks like in the adult human brain a bit deeper than when we first looked at the Senna's YouTube video with the connections in our brain this way. And this was my first look at neuroplasticity, and that video came out 10 years ago. Look at the difference with this image that came from 10 years ago to the research paper that Waldman talked about on adult neurogenesis in humans that changed his thinking about neuroplasticity and neurogenesis. He said the roads and neurons don't change, but the tiny exits that lead you to another neuron can slowly move to a different synapse, similar to how switchways work at a railroad track. And that's where synaptic plasticity takes place, and that's what happens in your brain when you learn something new. You're beginning to find new pathways that create different decisions and behaviors. And Waldman went on to point out some of his takeaways from that paper on neuroplasticity. But the ones that I want to mention that I think are important, he says this kind of plasticity does not add or replace neurons. He says the exception is a process called adult neurogenesis, and it's in two restricted regions, the olfactory bulb and the hippocampus, And that's exactly what Dr. Andrew Huberman was talking about in his research. Waldman says after 60 years of intense research and more than 10,000 peer-reviewed publications, we still do not know if our brain maintains this capability. He says synaptic changes are very slow, involved with learning and brain repair, and he thinks stem cell-driven adult neurogenesis is still far in the future. I've linked this research paper in the show notes for you to read if you'd like to on your own. 
So to review and conclude this episode, I think I've opened up a bit more of why this topic holds controversy among neuroscientists. And I think while this is a good start at explaining how neuroplasticity is different from neurogenesis, I do want to leave this topic open and come back to it at a later date and see what else we can add to our understanding. In the meantime, I'll continue to read, learn, and think of how our learning can apply to our daily life. While researching for this topic, I found an article that I really liked, and it was called, What is Neuroplasticity? And it was written just this past April of 2023. It explains neuroplasticity thoroughly and how it applies to learning, a growth mindset, and how it changes as we age. It covers neuroplasticity and how it can help with anxiety, which made me think back to when we just changed our brain with Dr. Carolyn Leaf's five-step process for cleaning up our mental mess on episode 299. And it even covers neuroplasticity exercises for treating chronic pain that took me back to our interview with Ashok Gupta, a well-known brain training neuroplasticity expert who taught us how to use our brain and mind to manage chronic pain and illness. And at the end of this article, there's many YouTube videos from many of the experts we've covered on this podcast. But what was missing was more about neurogenesis and how we can actually change our brain, not just rewire the pathways in it. And there were a bunch of quotes at the end all about neuroplasticity. I put the quotes all in the show notes. But where were the quotes on neurogenesis? Like the quote I found from Dr. Perlmutter, who said that we can regrow brain cells and retain this ability throughout our entire lifetime. I wonder, is it only possible in our hippocampus? Or will science someday reveal that adult neurogenesis is possible? Like what Mark Waldman mentioned with stem cell adult neurogenesis that he thinks will be off in the far future. Until we know for sure, I'm going to stick with doing what I know helps my brain, according to Dr. Perlmutter's work or Dr. Daniel Amen and Sandrine Thuret's TED Talk, where she says by doing certain things, like the words she highlighted in her graphic, we can create neurogenesis that's important for learning and memory. And I'll avoid the non-highlighted words that she says prevents neurogenesis. And I'll come back to this episode at a future date to see what else we can add to accelerate our understanding of neuroplasticity versus neurogenesis. And with that thought, I hope this episode has made you to think deeper about your brain, especially when it comes to making choices that we know can improve our ability to build a stronger, more resilient brain by doing more of what helps it in our brain cells instead of what hurts it. And I'll see you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 